Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Lords of Limited. My name is Ben Warney, and joining me on the line, as always, is Ethan Sachs. Ethan, it's time. School is out. Hashtag summer break, baby. Yeah, but school is in session here in Strixhaven, Ben. Oh, I forgot. Absolutely. Yeah, come on now. We still got we still got Strixhaven for, I don't know, a few more weeks. Uh, we, we are going to be doing uh, a little bit of Modern Horizons, Ben. And of course, we do have our Modern Horizons 2 preview cards to unveil today. Boom, baby. Yeah, so, uh, so some Modern Horizons action on the horizon for us. Because I think, I, I, at least for me, Ben, I've sort of reached the end of Strixhaven. Today, today on stream, I was like drafting Rakdos Sacrifice, just like hoping, <laughs> hoping to get past Claim the Firstborn and Mascot Interception. It uh, it did not go well. I love it. <laughs> come full circle. Yeah, yeah, definitely come full circle there for sure. So congratulations to you, though, on your last day of school being today. Actually, we're recording on a, on a Friday afternoon. Yeah, this is uh, unusual. Just got home from my office is like about 30% packed up. So I'm still not done. And there's a lot to do to wrap things up and get things ready for the new band director. But for all intents and purposes, I am ready to move on to the next step. Yeah, very, very exciting for you. A lot of magic on the horizon for you, I hope, maybe in the next month. Yes, other than moving, I am planning to play a boatload of Magic in June and July, hopefully. Awesome. All right, so as we like to sort of finish up things for a, a set release, uh, we're going to be doing our What's the Play for Strixhaven. So we're going to be running through a bunch of uh, in-game decisions. So some Keeper Mulligan choices and six scenarios lined up for you to play along at home with. These are tough episodes to construct, tough episodes to try and do, but I, we get really good feedback on them, and I think it's a really unique style episode. So we really like to try and do one for each set. So we're going to run through all of that today. But before we get into it, just a few housekeeping things. First things first is the Patreon page. Patreon.com slash Lords of Limited is where folks can go to give back to the show if they so choose. A lot of great perks over at the Patreon page. The base level perk is everyone gets access to the Lords of Limited Discord. We say it each and every week that it is the best place on the internet for 24-7 limited tech support. And that's all I'm going to say about uh, the Patreon and the Discord. I think the Patreon is a great place to go. And I think it's a really nice thing if, uh, if you feel like you've gotten value from the show. So the other thing I'm going to do is just shout out the new patrons like we do each and every week that join the fold. So this week we're welcoming Peter, Gavin, Jay, Dietje, Tanner, Benjamin, Matt, Mike, and Jason. Thank you, thank you, thank you. We really appreciate your support. Yeah, cannot say thank you enough. And another thing to note on these What's the Play episodes, 17 lands is absolute fire. So you're going to be able to, with the 17 land links, play the games from start to finish with us. Yeah, that's pretty sick. So when we used to do these, we used to just compile a bunch of imager links from the games. But now we just get to link not only that, Ben, but people then can just, if they want, if you want a ton of, you know, it is Strixhaven, if you want a ton of extracurricular <laughs> activities here, you could go back and walk through the draft logs for these decks. You could look at the builds 
builds for the decks. And then you can look at, you know, if you want to look at the other games from these drafts, you can do that too. So there's going to be a lot of uh, resources out there. We'll make sure we have like a, you know, a Google Doc link that'll have all the links for these keeper mold decisions and the what's the play. So yeah, shout out to 17lands.com. That's a huge upgrade for the style of episode and we would not be able to do it without them. Extra credit, baby. Got to get that A plus in Strixhaven. That's right. The show is also brought to you in part now by Channel Fireball, channelfireball.com. Best place to go for anything and everything you need magic related. We've talked a lot about CFB Pro, but I want to take a second just to do a little deep dive here. So there's two ways to sub. You can do $4.99 a month, um, same way you would sub to any Twitch channel to get access to premium content. You can also subscribe for $9.99 a month, and then you get that amount back in store credit. So that is essentially free to you if you would spend at least you know $9.99 a month on CFB products. So you know if you order a box of the new set or whatever, it is basically free for you to sign up for CFB Pro, and it helps Channel Fireball out a lot, and it also helps, I think, you and I directly a lot. I think in large part, the fact that we are you know sponsored by Channel Fireball and are able to write articles for Channel Fireball and you know make video content for Channel Fireball is because of CFB Pro. You know that was about when we were brought on because your subscriptions help provide more money to content creators like us. So if you're not on CFB Pro, would encourage you to think about either treating it like a Twitch sub, which I think the content is more than worth that, or essentially free to you if you're going to be spending the money on MTG. So CFB Pro, Ethan, Alex, myself, lots of pros writing articles on there, deep dives on things for limited. So check it out. Also, CFB is bringing back the Wizards Modern Horizon 2 pre-release event. We just got done with the Wizards Strixhaven release event. It feels like that was just around the corner. Time is flying by here, but there's going to be another one of these. And you and I are both participating. Uh, I'm on hashtag Team Dakin. What team are you on? I'm on hashtag team Chatterfang. Shout out to the squirrels. <laughs> Shout out to the squirrels. Yeah. So um, if you want to join, you can get six packs from your LGS and then you sign up. Uh, there's a link to the discord to register. And basically you just pick which team you want to join and then like winning matches or answering trivia questions or other things like that. Earn points for your different team. And worth noting that both Ethan and I are sponsored by Wizards uh, for this event. But I think I would be wanting to participate anyway, even if we were not sponsored. This was a blast last time for Strixhaven and really looking forward to the Modern Horizons event. So if you're planning to uh, do some pre-releasing and maybe you just aren't comfortable going to the local game store yet to actually play in person, or maybe your local game store is not open yet because of COVID, um, consider getting six packs and joining for the official Wizards Digital Modern Horizons 2 pre-release party. Yeah, I have had a blast each and every time. Uh, setting up spell table is actually pretty simple. And so if you've never done it, there's also some like how-to videos out there. Um, and then getting to play Paper Magic and meet other folks in the community uh, by chatting with them. I, I miss that aspect of the gathering. And so that's nice to have access to via these uh, these Discord release parties. Boom. All right. Modern Horizons 2, Ben. We got not one, not two, not three, not four, but five preview cards, baby. Courtesy of Wizards of the Coast. Thank you so much for the free preview content. Let's get into it. What's our first card? First card is Arcbound Javelinier. This is an uncommon white for an 01 artifact creature soldier. You can tap, remove X plus one plus one counters from it to deal X damage to target attacking or blocking creature. And it has modular one. So that means it enters the battlefield with a plus one plus one counter on it. And when it dies, you can move its plus one plus one counter you know, if you have ways to get extras, however many plus one plus one counters there are, this when it dies, you can move them to wherever. Well, to an artifact creature. I suppose that's true. Not wherever. <laughs> false advertising. Uh, fake news. False advertising there. Yeah. Uh, next up, we've got Ren's Run Hydra. This is X and a green for a zero zero Hydra with reach. 
Ren's Run Hydra enters the battlefield with X plus one plus one counters on it, but it also has Reinforce X, where you can pay XGG and discard this card to put X plus one plus one counters on target creature, which is kind of crazy. So it's a it's a split card essentially, right? One half is the creature, or it can be this combat trick that leaves the plus one plus one counters around, which is kind of wild. Oh yeah, that's crazy. It's not even sorcery speed. Wow. No. Yeah, it's very very good. What a busted mechanic. Yeah. Next up, we've got Specimen Collector. This is four and a blue for a 2-1 Vidalcan Wizard. Uncommon. When Specimen Collector enters the battlefield, create a 1-1 green squirrel creature token and an 0-3 blue crab creature token. And when Specimen Collector dies, you create a token that's a copy of target creature token. You, oh, no, any token you control, not creature token. Yeah, you can get a second treasure token if you want, I guess. And there's a bit of a token-y sub-theme going on, at least in blue for sure, from what I've seen from some of the other previews. Oh, okay, okay, sweet. Uh, next up is Radiant Epicure. This card's kind of gas. Four and a black for a 5-5 five, five Vampire Wizard with Converge, which is when a, when Radiant Epicure enters the battlefield, each opponent loses X life and you gain X life where X is the number of colors of mana spent to cast this spell. Hello. This is like a gray merchant all on its own, except you just have to be a five color brew, which I, of course, will be. <laughs> I was going to say, this is like your spirit animal, right? Yeah, exactly. And last but not least, we have a red uncommon here. This is Slag Strider, five red red for a three three elemental. And it has affinity for artifacts, so it costs one less to cast for each artifact you control. And you can pay one, sacrifice an artifact to have Slag Strider deal one damage to any target. So it seems like affinity is going to be back, maybe maybe in white and red, based on the Arcbound Javelinier and the Slag Strider, um, which is kind of a departure from other Masters sets. Typically, it's blue-white. So be curious to see how that plays out. But Slag Strider seems like it could dome your opponent out pretty easily yeah it'd be interesting to see how all these play out i can't quite get a, a handle on them it's always so hard to evaluate these like you know these uncommons in normal sets would be strong i mean maybe not you know arcbound javelinier but that would sort of indicate a you know a heavy artifact theme or a plus one plus one counter theme in these master sets like modern horizons you often have like keyword soup a lot of the time you know you have a ton of different mechanics. It's not just like three headliner mechanics. There's a lot of little pockets of stuff going on and the power level is really high. So, you know, stuff that may seem insane in some sets may be a little, you know, lower powered in these, uh, in these master style sets. Yeah. I'm liking specimen collector a lot. Yeah. Was that, that's just cause we're, we're on the specimen train from, uh, from hunt for specimens and Strixhaven, I think, I guess, but I think <laughs> the, the token stuff has seemed sweet from the, the other previews I've seen. Yeah. That does seem sweet. So thanks again to wizards of the coast for the free preview content. Like I said, we will be, uh, we'll be doing some modern horizons content here on the podcast in a few weeks. Uh, once we get our hands on them and, and we're going to run through a bunch of cues and MTGO and uh, report our findings. So I'm looking forward to playing with the set. Me as well. All right. That's going to take us into our, uh, keeper mulligans and then some what's the plays, but I thought we could, we did this last time for call time. Uh, well, I thought we could just do a little quick rundown of a review of mulligan heuristics, or at least how, how I think we view mulligan heuristics. And first up here. I think is look for reasons to keep hands, not mulligan. You know, the, I don't know what the stats are. There's something like, you know, your win rate goes down, you know, 10% or something when you mulligan. Limited is very much about card quantity, not about card quality a lot of the time. Mulliganing is very bad. So you want to look for reasons to keep hands, not mulligan. I would say one caveat to that is in best of one, it is difficult to keep hands that are not functional. Like, you know, three lands and, you know, four do nothing spells or whatever. You just have such a high chance of getting curved out on. 
Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's very true. You know, there, you should sort of operate under the assumption that your opponents will curve out and keep or mulligan hands appropriately. Yeah. So one way to frame this looking for reasons to keep hands instead of mulligan is looking at your hand. If you had to send one card back from your opening hand, would this be an above average hand for the deck? So like, let's say you've got six cards you're happy with and one card you're not really in your seven land opener. If yes, then you should probably keep that hand. You know, your hand doesn't need to be absolutely perfect. You know, maybe you have your eight drop in your hand. That's fine. You know, if you're as, as long as your other six cards are still functional. Does your hand need both lands and spells to function? If the answer to that is yes, then you have to mulligan. I think that's the easiest way to know when to mulligan is if you need both lands and spells. So for example, when you've got like two ways to augment a creature, three lands of one color, and then a removal spell. Well, not only do you need to draw your second color, but you also need to draw a creature to unlock the two creature augmentation spells that you have, like a guiding voice or whatever. So I think that's an example of a hand that you would have to mulligan. Right. And then another question would be, does your hand enact your deck's game plan? If the answer to that is yes, great, keep. If the answer to that is no, you might want to think about mulliganing. You know, if you're a very aggressive deck and your hand is not very aggressive, that can be a reason to go to six cards, even if your hand looks like it's theoretically functional. Yeah, you know, if you're an aggro silver quill deck on the play in best of one, but your first play is combat professor. Now, I'm going to jump ahead to another point here, which is like, you can also, you know, we all often talk about like the calculations of hitting land drops. Well, you also can do calculations of, I did this today, calculations of hitting creatures. Like how many two drop creatures and three drop creatures do you have that you could draw before you hit that combat professor to make this an acceptable aggressive opening hand? Right. That ties directly into when in doubt, use the Ben Warney method, which is trust your deck. Yeah, I think this is a great method. I do think it's just like when in doubt, keep, I think, is a really good spot to be in. If you're on the fence, you're probably supposed to keep um, just because mulliganing is so punishing. Yeah. And then I think the other thing it's really important to know is just how being on the play or on the draw impacts the goodness or the functionality of your hand. You know, if you have a one lander, on the play, you have to mulligan because your odds of hitting that land that you need are so low. But if you have a one lander on the draw and you have a fairly low you know, mana value hand, you can probably keep because you're about 75% to hit that second land in two draw steps. Yeah. And the last thing here is know your percentages. And I think the ones that, that I find the most helpful to have committed to memory or the ones that I often find myself going to are any land in two draws. Like what's your odds of hitting any land in two draws? or a specific color in two or three draws, you know, and that's usually going to be if if it's your main color, right? So if I've got, got 10 swamps and seven planes in the deck and I've got planes in my opener, well, how likely am I to, to grab that swamp in the next couple draws? And it's it's going to be, you know, in the you know, the high 50s rate or something, depending on if you're in uh, on the player of the draw there. Um, so, you know, you just want to know those percentages. And I, my general feeling is if you are doing one of those hyper geometric calculations and the outcome is, you know, somewhere in the mid 60s, if you're two thirds or higher, uh, percentage wise there, I, I would, you know, keep or or be in favor of that uh, decision. Absolutely. All right, Ben, should we uh, get into uh, some of these keeper mulligan decisions? Let's do it. What do you got for us first here? All right, first up, we've got a pretty spicy Prismari deck, uh, fairly good mana. This is running 18 lands. Uh, you get two Prismari apprentices at the bottom of the curve. Heavy red splashing for a Lorehold command, and you have Lorehold campus planes and a campus guide um, as your ways to search up 
planes, as well as an environmental sciences and plenty of learn cards. So mana's mana's very good. You look at your opening hand and you are on the draw. So you're going to have two shots to find lands that you need. And you see the following cards. There's access tunnel as your only land. (laughs) And then the rest of your hand is pillar drop warden, heated debate, campus guide, frost trickster, a freet flame painter, and lore hold command. So you look at this hand and you see a colorless land. You see a blue card, three red cards, and your splash card in Lorehold Command. And I think a lot of people's instinct would be to ship this. But I think the math checks out that you're really not supposed to, right? You've got 17 lands left in the deck. You're on the draw, so you have two shots to find it, which means you're 77% to hit your second land. Now, you that means 23% of the time, you're probably just going to lose this game, right, Ben? Probably, but I think you could maybe even afford to brick for a turn. Your hand is very powerful. Right, you have a removal spell, Trickster helps you catch back up. And the thing here that sort of, you know, the, the, the thing to think about, it, it looks like, well, you, you need so many colors. Well, but you know that you're gonna, whatever land you draw is going to provide a color of mana. So, you know, if you draw an island or a... Uh, a mountain, then whatever. Campus Guide goes and finds the other one. It is awkward that you've got Lorehold Command, but you also know you have a ton of learn, so finding environmental sciences, right? Should you be so lucky that the lands flow, I think unlocking Lorehold Command is quite doable. And like you said, your hand is powerful, so I do think this is a keep. It's it's scary to do so, but I do think it's a keep. Well, and the thing is, if you find your second land, Campus Guide guarantees your third land. And then if you're right. lucky, you get a curve into a Freet Flame Painter and just win. I mean, this if things go right, this hand is also very, very powerful. And that's another reason to like be willing to take on that risk. Yeah, I, I agree. So I did end up keeping this hand, and we did end up bricking for like four turns in a row. Wah, wah, wah. But no regrets. I think it's right to keep this hand. For sure. All right, next up uh, is a Keeper Mole from me, which is a deck that's a, a nice Jeskai Spice, red-white with a pretty deep blue splash, thanks to environmental sciences, lots of learn, guiding voice, triple study break, deck really built around a triple reflective golem in a way with a lot of ways to target it, double reconstruct history to get them back, yada, yada, yada. Um, the hand that you're looking at here is three lands, mountain, island, frost boil snarl, uh, and then you've got two study breaks, a Relic Sloth, and an Explosive Welcome. Yeah, I don't love this hand looking at it. I mean, it looks fine, right? Like you have three lands, four spells, but you can't cast anything. So you need to draw white mana for your study breaks, and theoretically you need to draw a two or a three mana play. So I think this checks the box of you need to hit multiple things for your hand to function, and so I don't like keeping here. Yeah, I agree. So I did send this back, but I thought that the six was kind of interesting. So our next hand is two lands, Plains Mountain, and the spells in the hand are Study Break, Rutha, Mercurial Artist, Reconstruct History, Pillar Drop Warden, and Pillar Drop Rescuer. So I think this is a keep, but what, what do you put back here, Ben? My gut says I would put back Reconstruct History. I think the deck is... Plenty powerful, and I think Rutha is higher upside than Reconstruct History, and both of those are late game cards, so I think I like keeping the higher upside of the two late game cards in Rutha over Reconstruct History, even though we don't have the island for it yet. Yeah, I like that. Well, the thing is, is that we know we're going to get an island, right? We're going to play Study Break on two, get Sciences play sciences that, that I, unless you know we draw two drop or whatever i think that's going to be the play so yeah I, I like that decision of putting back reconstruct history it's not what i did in the moment and i'm not really sure i think i put back the pillar drop rescuer but with a card as powerful as rutha that rescuer can get back 
I think putting back reconstruct history is much better. Boom. Got him. Got him. <laughs> okay, next up we have a Prismari deck. 18 lands, uh, even split between islands and mountains, and then two swamps to help us cast the Poet's Quill. And wah, wah, no environmental sciences. So this is a bit of a rough splash here. Deck is a little high curve as well, I think, for a Prismari deck. Your only two-drop creature is Plarg, Dean of Chaos. So we're checking out our opening hand here. You're on the draw, and you see the following hand. You have Triple Island, Pop Quiz, and Solve the Equation as well as Plarg, Dean of Chaos, and Twin Scroll Shaman as creatures that are red. Yeah, I think the important distinction here for this hand, and it was one of the reasons I wanted to discuss it, was that player draw, I think, makes a big difference here. And it's one of the points that we highlighted from uh, our sort of mulligan heuristics. I think on the play, this is a keep. It's a bit of a yikes and keep, but I think it's a keep. What do you think about that? Because you're going to get a cast pop quiz on three no matter what, and you're not going to have to discard? Right. And then on the draw, if pop quiz is your first play, you have to discard and that is too bad. Is that your opinion? And it's way too slow. Right. And you you also could learn or you also could rummage off of your learn for pop quiz as well. That's one thing mm-hmm. that I have found myself doing quite a bit when I don't have environmental sciences is remembering that I have the rummage option if I need to find a land. Yeah, I think that's a really good option to remember. Yeah, for sure. But I, I just think like... I'm much happier with Pop Quiz being my first play on the play on turn three than I am on the draw. Not only for the discard clause, that's that's one thing, but it's just like not being able to affect the board before turn three or really before turn four against someone who is, in theory, like we said, we're just assuming in best of one our opponents are curving out. In theory, this my opponent is going to go two drop, three drop. I'm just going to be dead, right? Probably. What is your percentage to hit a mountain here if you get lucky? You're like under 50%, right? 45 or something like that, probably? For like a turn two Plarg, you mean? Yeah. Yeah, it's actually 43% to hit one of the eight mountains we have in two draws if we're keeping this on the draw, which I just I think is pretty unlikely. This is a close hand for me. I think in best of one, you probably mulligan. I'm inclined to keep this in best of three, to be honest. Yeah, I think so. I think best of one makes a difference here. All right, that's going to bring us to our what's the play. So I'm going to start us off here with our first one. Um, <laughs> drafted this deck today, Ben, and uh, you know, having read your Witherbloom article, uh, this deck performed as expected. A nice, nice Witherbloom one three. Uh-oh. Um, <laughs> I felt so bad writing that article for CFB. It was just like, don't draft Witherbloom. Witherbloom's kind of bad for this reason. Like, I didn't have a whole lot of advice on how to make it good. <laughs> I was like trying to draft a good deck, and then I got. Pick nine Damagoth Woe Eater, pick 10 Damagoth Woe Eater, pick 11 Deadly Brew. And I was like, all right, so no one is drafting this. And this is when I'm supposed to draft it. And it still just like did not play out well. But anyway, we've got a pretty good situation here from this deck. So this is a, you know, with the Bloom deck, triple hunt for specimens, double Damagoth Woe Eater, double Spectre of the Fens. Um, we do have a 10 of the Pests for the big bad Woe Eaters. No sciences in the board, but a nice little lesson board that we'll get to in just a second. Um, here is the situation. We're on your turn five, missing a land drop here. Uh, life totals are 19 for the opponent, 18 for us. Opponent has two cards in hand, five lands in play, a stone rise spirit, and a letter of acceptance. On our side of the battlefield, we have four lands and a pest. We've drawn for turn already, and we're just trying to decide how best to develop our hand here um, as we're, we're missing lands. So uh, our hand is comprised of Unwilling Ingredient, Crash Through, Deadly Brew, Scurried Colony, Field Trip, and Specter of the Fens. So with the four lands in play, I think we can boil it down to three options here, Ben. 
first one being be the most mana efficient and play Spectre of the Fens, which is also nice as you know a blocker for the one two flyer um, and uses our, our our mana the most efficiently and is like an aggressive play. You know, uh, we also have the option of casting Field Trip and Unwilling Ingredient because we only have one forest at the moment, so we can only cast one green spell. Or I suppose we could also cast Deadly Brew to answer the Stonerise Spirit, sacrificing our pest and getting back a Spring Main Servin, the 3-2, out of our graveyard. I think those are the three options that are, are most viable. And I think it's just about like, what do we think is the best thing to do at this point in the game? Yeah, looking at each option, I think Spectre is the most obviously face-up thing, right? Man efficient, you play your Spectre, boom, you're set for the next turn. The thing I don't love about that is it doesn't set you up super well for future turns. And then I think the least desirable option of the three is to Deadly Brew getting back Spring Main Servant. You could also play Unwilling Ingredient there, but that doesn't really do much for you. Like It gets your opponent's Stonerise Spirit off the board, but with only two cards in hand and the life totals as high as they are, Stonerise Spirit is not a card that concerns me. I think this is less about what our opponent has and how to interact with it and more about how to be as efficient as possible for ourselves. So I think the thing that sets us up best for the future is to actually field trip an unwilling ingredient because that gets you to five lands and then you also have the potential to if you draw a land off the top then you can double spell with specter of the fens and scurred colony which is a very powerful turn um, and i think you know field trip's also going to let you grab a lesson it just gets things flowing i think it is the best way to develop you, you want to hit land drops you've got a scurred colony that you want to get to eight lands for I like it. Yeah, I think if our opponent has a more formidable board presence here, then maybe playing Spectre is a little better. But I'm not even sure if that's true. Like maybe it's still just better to field trip, go get, I don't know, fractal summoning, hope to make a 4-4 next turn, that type of deal, depending on what they have. I think I think the field trip unwilling ingredient play it does what you said. Sets us up for the best future turns. And then we got to decide what lesson we're going to learn for. Options in the board are Fractal Summoning, Pest Summoning, Intro to Prophecy, and Intro to Annihilation. What do you like there? Yeah, uh, given the texture of our hand, I opted to go for Intro to Annihilation in the moment just because we didn't have any removal spells, right? Like Fractal Summoning is far away from being impressive. I don't really like if I maybe if I had a Damagothwo Eater and wanted to keep it around, I could go get Pest Summoning. But even then, I've already got a Pest and an ingredient to sacrifice to it. So it felt like Intro to Annihilation sort of like, you know, filled a hole in my hand in terms of interaction. Yeah, I think the other option is Introduction to Prophecy. That's kind of what I tend to default to in these spots just because we don't really know what we need yet. And so it lets mm-hmm. us dig towards other better spells in our deck. I think that's something else to think about as well. Yeah. And, and sets you up for, you know, if, if you want a double spell and you miss your land drop next turn, well, then you can play that and colony or, you know, play that and deadly brew. So yeah, I think that's a good option as well. The, the what's the plays for this format are just off the chain because all of them sort of have that lesson learn thing built into them. And so it's not only like a puzzle of what to do with what you have, but then it's the next step puzzle of, what are you supposed to do with your lesson board? Yeah, I do. I do think I like Intro to Prophecy better there for the reasons that you stated, that it also is going to help you if you brick on a land, you can prophecy, look for a land and play Skirt Colony. Yeah, no, I like that. All right, we got our next What's the Play here. You got a sweet Prismari deck and Splashing for Lorehold Command. This is actually the same deck that we saw for our uh, Mulligan decisions in the Keeper Mull. Um, so yeah, you get those Prismari pr- Apprentices at the bottom of the curve. You get the White Splash for the Lorehold Command, Triple Burian Books, Double Pillar Drop Warden, Double Heated Debate, Double Enthusiastic Study. It's a good, good looking deck. 
So we are deep in the game here. It is your turn, and you just drew for the turn. Life totals are very relevant here. <laughs> opponent is at two life, and we are at four life. Your opponent has no cards in hand. So this is all like sort of face up here for what to do, which I think is one of the reasons this is such a great what's the play. So your opponent's tapped out, no cards in hand. Their board is a tapped combat professor, star pupil as a 1-1, lorehold pledge mage, and an owlin shield mage. So they've got four creatures. On our side of the battlefield, we are significantly less developed. We have just a lone Lorehold Pledge Mage. We've got five lands in play, two mountains, two islands, and a plains. And our hand is Heated Debate, Mountain, Pillar Drop Warden, Pillar Drop Warden, and Burian Books. So two of the Pillar Drop Wardens. And again, life totals, opponents at two, and we are at four. And we're just sort of figuring out what do we want to do here? You know, first of all, we need to make sure we don't die. And we also theoretically are trying to figure out ways to kill our opponent. So I think, you know, looking at this board state, you're almost certainly, you know, planning to cast Heated Debate and Bury in Books this turn because that's by far the most mana efficient thing you can do, right? If you pillar drop Warden, you lock yourself out of both those spells and you just don't have good enough blocks. Yeah, you die if you do that. <laughs> right. So then I think the question becomes, you have the option to potentially attack here, right? Because your opponent's at two, so you know that they have to block which is good information to know. And then I think you also you also theoretically have the option to not attack and wait and see what your opponent's going to do. But So that's the first question I'm going to pose to you. Do you attack here and why? So I think I would attack here. And the reason is, is I think an attack will help you clear more of the board. Because if So let's put ourselves in, in your opponent's shoes. Let's say you don't attack. You pass with six mana up. And we know that what we have to do is cast Heated Debate on the Shield Mage so that the we don't have to pay the three life to kill it. And then we're probably going to bury in books the, the Combat Professor. And if I'm your opponent, then I just don't attack with my ground creatures, right? I leave Star Pupil and Lorehold Pledge Mage back. And then I send him with the Shield Mage and the Professor. You have the two answers for that, but now you're still contending with these two ground creatures that you don't really have good ways to get through. I think an attack does the same as a as a block if your opponent goes crazy and attacks, but I think an attack gives you more agency over the potential to remove some stuff, you know? Well, right. And in a nutshell, attacking... I think, takes decisions away from your opponent, right? It takes options away from your opponent because they also have a draw step. You know, they could draw a removal spell. Who knows? Like there's a lot that could go wrong if you don't attack and they draw action or interaction. And by attacking now, you know for certain that you are getting at least one of their creatures off the battlefield, which is what you want to do anyway on blocks. Plus, you also give your opponent a chance to block incorrectly and make a mistake. You know, we have enthusiastic studies in the deck. Opponents already seen them. They don't know how many we have. Who knows? Like, they could make a mistake trying to play around enthusiastic study. There's all kinds of things going on here on your opponent's side. Because they're a two. They've got to be pretty worried about not dying. Right. They have to block the pledge mage. So you're forcing them to block. So that's the, the, then the next step is, okay, if I attack, if... I'm the opponent, what do I do? And I think for my money, I would just block with Star Pupil. I think that's the obvious play, right? You know, they could go wild and I don't know. I guess they could just do a really heads up play, which is trade Lorehold Pledge Mages. Or they could do a crazy thing where they like block with Shield Mage and hope you don't have anything, but they, you know, you probably do. Or they could like multi-block. But I think if I'm them, I would just block with Star Pupil. What about you? That's interesting. If I put myself in their shoes, I like trading pledge mages because it's guaranteed to happen right on their side of things unless we have a combat trick right well i mean enthusiastic study they're basically losing to right so i think they can't play around study that's fair because even if they triple block you just eat 
all of their creatures. Um, so I think they just can't afford to play around study. But yeah, I, you know, trading pledge mages, I think is a, a really heads up play there. Um, but I think I would, I would probably chump with the pupil. Um, but yeah, I, li- I like the attack. I think it forces them into, like you said, it gives them less options. It forces them to do something right now before, while they're tapped out and have no cards in hand, you know? Right. So we did make that attack and then we see the opponent did triple block. So knowing that the opponent triple blocked, they lined up their star pupil, their lore hold pledge mage and their owl and shield mage. What's the play then? Uh, so I think the play now is to, even though like I have it locked in my head that I want to heat a debate the shield mage because that means I don't have to pay three life. I think now the way that they've done stuff, I would heat a debate the pledge mage, which will bump our pledge mage up to a three, two, and then we can first strike kill the Allen shield mage. And then Star Pupil is left around and doesn't dump a counter anywhere, which is also nice. And then we have Baryan Books to answer an attacker of our choice on the following turn. Yeah, that's actually not the play that I made. And I think my play is also defensible here as well. Twitch chat pointed out the uh, you know heated debating down the Lorehold Pledge Mage line to me, and I missed that. My play was to heated debate the Shield Mage still. And I think what that offers you is a totally clear board, which is also pretty appealing. And I think maybe even better. I don't know, thinking through this again now. So you get a first strike down both the star pupil and the pledge mage. And you know, if they put the counter on the shield mage, you also get rid of the counter from the shield mage because you just get a heated debate it down as a 4-4. And if they decide to put the counter on the combat professor, also fine because you're going to get rid of the counter ultimately with the Varian books. So I think by killing the pledge mage and the star pupil, you're guaranteeing yourself a clear board with two pillar drop wardens to rebuy spells and your opponents on no action. So it feels like that stabilizes you a lot. I don't know. Even looking at this again, I kind of like that play the most. The reason that I like, I just think it's better to have your pledge mage around. I don't, I don't see why it's better to lose your creature. Yeah, it's interesting. Like you're saying, you, like you're wanting to get star pupil off the board in exchange for your pledge mage to be off the board. And I don't like that. Yeah, I guess because, yeah. So when we talk through this, then if the opponent cracks back, you have a chance to just win, right? Right. I mean, so either they only attack with one creature and then you bury that or, you know, they get frisky and try and go for lethal, which I think they probably do, right? They go plus one, plus oh, and vigilance to star pupil, attack with both for lethal. You bury the pupil, which does leave you open to, I don't know, something. But then, but then you have pillar drop, you back-to-back pillar drop wardens to block the combat professor on future turns if, you know, something goes wrong for, for you from their draw step. I just like having the possibility of lethal next turn, which your line doesn't let you have. Correct, yeah. I maybe and maybe that's just because I'm feeling so on the defensive here. It's a super yeah. interesting what's the play because there's so much going on for your opponent being tapped out and having no cards in hand. And I think the first thing to recognize is that it's very right to attack because it removes a lot of options from your opponent. Yeah, and that is not intuitive to me at all. I, I don't know if I would have made that play in the moment, but I I, I think talking through it with you and seeing it here, it, it just makes sense to do. And that's another, that's just a tough shift, like, especially having been, you know, whatever, this is you know, eight turns deep in the game. And, you know, you, you 
are at four, your opponent's at two. This has obviously been a grindy back and forth game. They have four creatures, you have one. It's very easy to think, I can't attack here, but I think it's right to do so. Yep. All right, next up, we've got another one from me. This is a nice little Prismari deck with my first time playing with Mizix's Mastery, and it was insane. This is a very spell-heavy deck. Uh, triple Serpentine Curve, Double Heated Debate, Igneous Inspiration, Format All-Star Spell Satchel there in the two drops. Oh my lord. There. I would just like to let the listeners know that you and I have talked about Spell Satchel, and you got me a little higher on it, and it is still garbage. The card is not good. I told you, I think it's better than Mindstone, Ben. It's Mindstone <laughs> with upside is how I would classify it now. Uh, <laughs> um, so here's the situation. We are pretty deep in this game as well. So here's the board state for you. Uh, your opponent's life total is at 12, and you're at 8. Like I said, very deep in the game. They're tapped out with 8 lands in play, 2 cards in hand. They just cast a big bad bookworm. They've also got a master symmetrist in play. On our side of things, uh, we have a symmetry sage, uh, a 4-4 four, four elemental, and a 9-9 nine, nine fractal with just buckets of mana available to us. The symmetry sage you have in play is a 2-2 two, two flyer uh, because we did cast a strategic planning already. The 4 cards in our hand are Serpentine Curve, Spectacle Mage, Pillar Drop Warden, and Igneous Inspiration. And I think the thing I want to boil down here is how best to utilize Igneous Inspiration here. And I want to point to our lesson board here. And I got to say, we haven't shouted this out yet with the 17 lands feature. Now when you do game replays, there's just a button for lesson board. Like before, I felt like you had to go click on the deck and see the lesson board on the deck. And now you just, boop, it's right there. I was literally when we were debriefing or not debriefing, planning for the show, debriefing happens after something. (laughs) Pre-briefing. We were pre-briefing for the show. And I was like, huh, what's your lesson board? And then I saw the button and I was like, whoa. That button is awesome. It's great. So the one thing I want to point out in the lesson board is that we have Mercurial Transformation, uh, which is the one in a blue lesson, lets you turn a thing into a 1-1 or a 4-4 with no other text until end of turn. And uh, and that's quite good with Igneous Inspiration, right? We can use that to deal three to something, go find Transformation, turn it into a 1-1, a 1-1 with three damage on it will die. So I think that is the, the thing that I want to focus on here. So the options that I think you have are... You could cast that on Bookworm and grab Mercurial Transformation and kill it pre-combat, right, to take it out, which is pretty appealing because that opens up a good attack for your 9-9, a possible trade with your 4-4, etc. You could wait till after blocks, right, to see what you can kill. And then there's also this, this third potential option, which is your opponent could just decide that they don't want to interact unfavorably with your 9-9 Fractal and let that through, which gives you kind of oops lethal with Igneous Inspiration going face, right? Remember the opponent is at 12, so the 9-9 Fractal plus the 3 from Inspiration. Those those are your options. Maybe you see something else as well, Ben, but I'm, I'm curious to hear your thoughts. Well, yeah, so the other thing you have to decide is what to attack with here. And I think if you're right. taking the line where you're potentially going for lethal, you want to swing all to give your opponent a chance to, you know, maybe they eat your 4-4, eat your 2-2, and then take 9. I think that's the most appealing way to get them to accidentally take the damage and be able to kill them with igneous inspiration Mm -hmm. otherwise it changes what you're attacking with i think if you're pre-combating the igneous inspiration to take out the bookworm in tandem with the mercurial transformation then you're i think not swinging with a symmetry sage because well i guess you still are because then they're forced to avoid lethal so you're probably swinging with everything regardless but i really like going for lethal here potentially just swinging out and the thing is 
you have a 12-12 serpentine curve locked and loaded in hand. So <laughs> there's very little chance that something goes wrong here and you accidentally die. And the upside of potentially getting to kill your opponent is so high. Yeah, that's that's true. I mean, you know, you're not in a precarious spot here. But I do think that attacking all for the potential of, yeah, it's a chump attack with two creatures, right? They they eat the Symmetry Sage with the 4-4. They eat your 4-4 Elemental with their Bookworm. But then the 9-9 gets through and Igneous Inspiration is like one of the only ways, you know, if you're your opponent, you think through like, well, what are the, you know, there's not a lot of burn that can go face in the set. Igneous Inspiration is one of the the few ways and uh, it just so happens to be Exaxes. And that is what ended up happening. But I was really stuck on, I, I tanked a long time on this play thinking about, oh, I should just Inspiration and, tra- and Transformation to kill the Bookworm now. They're tapped out. That's great. And then, you know, I follow up with a Serpentine Curve and we're just good to go. But that does deny you the possibility of lethal this turn, which is what I got. Right. And then I think you're definitely never going for lethal if your opponent has opening mana here, right? You're always doing the Igneous Inspiration Mercurial Transformation play because the chances of something going wrong are so much higher if your opponent has open mana. Yeah, it's a much riskier line for not that much upside. You know, it's, yeah, especially like imagine they have three open mana, including an island. Well, then I just got, I have Metal Mario's voice in my head saying barrier fractal, you know, and I just see that nine nine disappearing immediately. So yeah, I, I agree with that for sure. All right, we're back with one of mine. This is our fourth What's the Play here, and we're still rocking my same Prismari Splash Lorehold Command deck. Um, and we've got a pretty sweet spot here. So Here's the the situation. Uh, important information is that from game one, we're playing best of three here. From game one, we know our opponent has Professor's Warning, which is pretty relevant to what's going to happen from our plays here. So life total is pretty irrelevant here. Our opponent is at 18 life. We're at 19 life. Hands are very important. We're early in the game here. It's our turn three. Opponent has five cards in hand and three untapped mana. Um, they have a Plains and Two Swamps, as well as a Shile Dean of Radiance. That's the one and a white, one, one flying vigilance that can tap to put a plus one, plus one counter on each creature that entered the battlefield under our control this turn, or their control this turn, rather. On our side, we have a Prismari Apprentice, and we've attacked our opponent down to 18, clearly. And we have three lands, so Mountain, Island Island. Our hand is Lorehold Command, Burian Books, Access Tunnel, Island, Enthusiastic Study, and Heated Debate. So basically, we want to interact with the Shile, but we need to decide when and how to do that, especially knowing that our opponent has Professor's Warning. So just a couple things to talk through here. I think, you know, if you're going to fire off removal into untapped mana and you suspect that your opponent might have a way to protect their creature or save their creature, it's in your best interest to put a stop on their upkeep and to do it on their upkeep because then you force them to use the mana on their turn rather than getting the benefit of using their mana on your turn when you try to kill a thing as well as getting to untap and use their mana for the turn. You also deny them the extra bit of information of their draw step in terms of knowing if they want to use the mana in that way or not based on what they draw. And you also deny them that that percent chance that you're playing around a card that they then happen to draw in that draw step. So that's why the upkeep stop there is the best place to do it. Right. So I think plan A here is heated debating our opponent's shile. Yeah. And, but they have three open mana. And so it's awkward. You don't want to do it now, right? So you're either going to do it, you would do it in their upkeep, except that you have access to Baryan books, which neatly plays around Professor's Warning in a way and would only cost three mana, right? You know they're going to attack with it next turn, so you could do that as well. Right, yeah. So I think the play here is, you know, go to your, certainly past your opponent's turn, 
and then stop in their upkeep. But even then, if you're suspecting professor's warning, you get pretty wrecked if you go for heated debate and they have the professor's warning and then can play a creature. Because not only do they save their shale, but they hit you for two and they still get to play a creature and put a plus one plus one counter on it. So I think they're almost 100% to attack. And even if they don't attack into Baryan books, then they're probably going to play a spell which would potentially force them to tap out of Professor's Warning. Be pretty heads up to play around Barry, I think, here. But I could see it. You know, it's only one damage and it does stop you. I, I guess I think I probably actually would not attack into Barry here if I'm the opponent. Yeah. So on their main phase, they ended up playing a Promising Dusk Mage, leaving up a single black. So when the Dusk Mage is on the stack, again, it's tempting to go for the Heated Debate on the Shale. But I think you get blown out so hard by the fact that they might have the professor's warning and you've seen it from them. And they've mm-hmm. played in such a way that like, you know, they're a silver cool deck. I think it's very suspicious that they didn't have a play on turn three. And I think it's likely that they had the professor's warning and were choosing to leave that up to potentially interact with a removal spell. The other thing that's really great about the Barian books here is that it adds a counter to the Prismaria Apprentice. And not that that, I think, affects the decision you're making in terms of playing around prof- professor's warning so effectively, but that is a nice upside to this play. Right. And I think all of this is we gave our opponent multiple options to potentially go shields down and they never did. And they did end up attacking and we bury in books shale. But I think we played neatly around professor's warning as best we could. Yeah, it's uh, it was a really nice sequence there. And turned out later in the game, they did in fact have it. Yeah, the next turn they cast it and you got to blow them out with heated debate, right? Yep. You love to see it. All right, so next up, we've got our fifth What's the Play. This deck is a, a real beaut. It's not one of mine. It's uh, This was uh, brought to me uh, from one of my coaching students. This is a really nice Cody deck, base blue green with a red splash for Rutha and Urza's Rage. Uh, really, really good deck there. Um, the situation that we're in is we're, we're on the back foot here against a sort of Mardu aggro opponent who's at 20 while we're at 13. They have four cards in hand. They, they've just tapped out uh, to play Spiteful Squad after beating us down with a Star Pupil and a Tome Shredder. On our side, nothing. Bupkis. Five lands, um, <laughs> and we've drawn, uh, drawn our spell for turn. No lands in hand, so a ton of options here, Ben. So bear with me, folks, as we talk about the cards in hand and, and the options that we have in terms of what to do. Uh, so cards in hand moving up the curve. There's an Environmental Sciences. There's a Test of Talents a strategic planning, an arcane subtraction, a serpentine curve, a quandrix cultivator, barian books, and elemental summoning. So, you know, we found a couple lessons here throughout the game, but having trouble affecting the board. So I'm going to walk you through what I think the options are. We have five lands in play, so we could just straight up play elemental summoning, right? Use our mana the best, affect the board with a 4-4. We could play environmental sciences to grab our splash land, which is a mountain, and then play a land for turn. That would give us our fourth land. And then we could play, you know, we could play Curve as a 4-4 there. We could play Quandrix Cultivator there as a 3-4. So those are options. We could Environmental Sciences for a land, and then we have four lands up. And we could pass with a variety of instants, right? Test of Talents, Baryan Books, Arcane Subtraction, maybe a combination of a couple of those um, with the four mana. Or we could play Quandrix Cultivator search up a land, and then we would have two lands up to either cast environmental sciences there, cast a strategic planning, or pass and hold up test of talents and arcane subtraction. A lot to you know unpack there, Ben. What, what do you like or dislike about those options? There is a lot to unpack. And I think the first thing that's important to note is just that you took the time 
to figure out what all those options are because they're all reasonable, right? Like sometimes mm-hmm. these turns where your whole hand, you have a lot of cards in hand and they're all castable and you have like a moderately large amount of mana, like five mana, six mana. It's just really important to take a second and say, what can I actually do? Um, and I think I liked the option that you outlined last the best because, you know, you could environmental sciences and serpentine curve. That's reasonable, but really we need to stop pressure while maintaining a board state. So I think cultivating and getting that land that continues to develop our mana for future turns to continue to let us double spell because double spelling is going to be a big part of catching back up here. And then you also get to leave up test of talents and arcane subtraction, which is going to do twofold. If your opponent tries to you know, use a removal spell to continue to push damage, you get two test of talents and then still have a blocker in Quandrix Cultivator. And maybe you're only taking two from Spiteful Squad then, which is great. And if they don't try to leverage a removal spell pre-combat, you can potentially, if you decide to, go for Arcane Subtraction on Spiteful Squad and eat it. Or you can just take two. It just gives you so much flexibility for how you want to block. Yeah, for sure. I do think that's the best play. But there is another layer to this play that I think is important to note, which is that your opponent knows about environmental sciences, right? Like you've gone to find that from your lesson board, so that's there. So if you Quandrix Cultivator and then pass with two mana, your opponent should have the wheels turning, right? And slash you should be aware that you're giving up information. And there's there's nothing bad about that, right? There's not really much you can do about it because I think it's the right play. And there's not much your opponent can do about it because like, sure, they're gonna they'll start to probably think maybe about test of talents or arcane subtraction as possibilities. Those are both, you know, common options to have with two mana in a blue deck. Um, and they may then just decide to play a creature and only attack with Spiteful Squad. That still stems the bleeding enough for us that I think it's the best play. But I think it's important to be aware of that. And then on the flip side, when your opponents do stuff like that, right, when you have known information, they pass with two mana up and they have sciences in hand, well, you should think that they have another way they want to use their mana that turn, and that should be something you fold into the calculus of what you're going to do. Yeah, 100%. All right, last one here. We are back to a deck that we've seen before. This is uh, Ethan's Prismari deck here that is splashing for Poet's Quill a bit uh, precariously. So we've got that (laughs) 7-7, actually 8-8 mana base in Islands and Mountains, and then the two swamps for the Poet's Quill. A little bit of a a rough curve, um, as well as lots of learn, and the two serpentine curves as threats. So kind of a a control-ish looking Prismari deck with a bit of a suspect curve. I'll also say, like, Poet's Quill is super powerful, it's so awkward on the splash too because you can't cast and equip it in the same turn because <laughs> you only have one swamp usually. I would not recommend to other people out there. <laughs> Splashing for boat school. Yeah. Well, especially a suspect splash like this. But it's, yeah, but even so, I think it's weird because it's a single pipped bomb essentially, but it's not quite single pipped in that sense. That like it's a card that feels like it can catch you up in the way that a splashed card can, except. For it to do that when you want it to, it really is double pipped. Yeah, it's tough for sure. All right, so here's the situation. It's on turn six, and life totals are opponent at 20, you at 18. We're reasonably far into the game here. Um, Your opponent only has three cards left in hand, and they are tapped out. Uh, They just cast a Storm Kiln Artist, the the four mana 2-2 that gets plus one plus zero for each artifact you control and then makes treasures. Um, So it's our turn, and we just cast... Igneous inspiration on our opponent's Stormkiln artist. And the question is, what lesson do we want to go get and why? So, to give some context, the rest of our hand is Pop Quiz, 
Serpentine Curve, Creative Outburst, and Burien books. Um, and we've got five lands in play, three islands, two mountains. So what is the way to best set ourselves up for success um, by grabbing the correct lesson here? And boy, howdy, do we have a lot of lessons. So <laughs> options to go get, Fractal Summoning, Mercurial Transformation, Expanded Anatomy, Introduction to Prophecy, Spirit Summoning, Elemental Summoning, and Introduction to Annihilation. Ethan, you have been studying up in Strixhaven. Ben, e- we even have access to, when we draw both swamps, boom, Pest Summoning comes right oh, wow. in. Yeah, definitely <laughs> happened in those games. Uh, yeah, look, what can I say? I like I like my learn spells, I like my lesson spells, and then whatever garbage I can surround them with, I will do that. So I think there are several things to think about here. And I think the most important thing to think about is mana efficiency, because we've got a lot of expensive spells in hand, right? Given our current hand, we are casting one spell per turn as far as like pop quiz, serpentine curve, creative outburst, burying books, right? Because we don't have a land drop, you know, to play for the turn. So even if we draw our sixth land, our stuff is high enough CMC here that we're not going to be casting two spells in one turn. So that immediately for me rules out the expensive stuff like elemental summoning and fractal summoning because we want to give our hand a bit of texture that it doesn't currently have. And then so that leads you to, I think, trying to decide between expanded anatomy, intro to prophecy and spirit summoning. You really don't want to expand an anatomy because you don't have a threat on the battlefield currently. So I think, you know, you could intro to prophecy, but that's pretty similar to pop quiz. So I think in this rare circumstance, it's actually correct to go get spirit summoning because that potentially gives you the option to double spell. So, you know, you're going to your opponent's going to take their turn and then on your turn, next turn, you'll be able to pop quiz and you'll have two shots at any land to try to go spirit summoning afterwards. And that also gets you on board while giving you your best chance to hit land drops. Yeah, I guess you could make an argument for intro to prophecy because the life totals are so high and the mana value of cards in our hand is, is quite high. Like let's say, you know, next turn our opponent plays some threat it's okay for us to spend then the following turn, you know, intro to prophecy to ensure that we hit a sixth land and then pop quiz. And then we're probably on track to cast creative outburst the following turn. Or on turn seven, we can do the spirit summoning serpentine curve play then having found spirit summoning from the pop quiz. Um, but I just like the possibility of being able to affect the board for sure next turn with the spirit summoning. And then, you know, if we draw a natural land, that gives us a nice option of the following turn, we can either, you know, bury an attacker or play pop quiz with the remaining three mana. But it's all about setting up those future turns, right? We're, we're thinking about, you know, in, in some cases, I'm thinking about two, three turns ahead. How am I setting myself up best for success? And even though Spirit Summoning is, you know, one of the worst lessons in our board, it just enables us to use so much of our mana and affect the board next turn if we want to or need to, that I think it, it makes that the right play. And it's interesting too. It's so tempting to get elemental summoning, right? Because you have five mana, you know, you make a four, four, whatever. But that just, I think, ultimately constricts your options because you can't double spell. Like if you want to make a large creature, yeah. you already can do that with Serpentine Curve slightly less mana efficiently. That's exactly the thing I was going to say. It's like, well, if you want elemental summoning, we already have that. We have a better elemental summoning because Inspiration's about to go to the bin and that's going to make Serpentine Curve a five, five. So yeah, I, I don't, I don't think grabbing summoning there is right, even though I think that's the most tempting option. The more we talk about it, I kind of like introduction to prophecy. Yeah. Because that gives you your best shot, a hundred percent best shot at hitting a land, which is almost the most important thing here. Because even if your opponent taps out for a threat, 
if you find a land, then you have Burian books up. So you can prophecy Burian books and then do the pop quiz spirit summoning. I think it might be the most important thing to hit a land drop here. And prophecy lets you do that. How do you feel about that? I don't think it's I don't I don't hate it. I don't think it's bad. Yeah, because it gives you what five shots to hit a land, whereas the pop leaving just pop quiz and taking spirit summoning now that gives us just two shots, right? Draw step and pop quiz. It doesn't give you five. It gives you four because if you if you brick, you still don't get a pop quiz. So it's draw step plus scry two plus the draw off intro. So yeah, it gives us four shots at a land. But then that and then that land Let's us cast pop quiz or berry. Yeah, that's pretty darn good. I actually think I actually think it's better to get intro to prophecy. Yeah, I think I think you sold me here. All right, this format's too. I like. I don't. I'm sort of over the draft portion, but I will say the gameplay is still super super deep, and it's largely these decisions. The learn lesson stuff is so complicated. Well, because you're trying to anticipate not only what your opponent's going to do, but what you need to do and what sort of optionality you need. Yeah, for sure. Whew, a lot going on there. <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna go take a nap after uh, after diving deep into those. They're so good, though. And I think, you know, just as far as leveling up as a magic player, leveling up your gameplay is one of the most important things to level up. But it's also one of the hardest to level up. And I think just having, you know, a concrete example of something like this, where we're talking about what's the right lesson to go get, or a concrete example of, you know, the, the one where we were playing around Professor's Warning. Just like actually seeing that happen in real time with us explaining our thought process and being able to go back and look at the gameplay logs. If you really are serious about getting better, because these types of situations come up again and again and again, right? It's going to be different cards in a different format. But the the basic concept of timing of removal or, you know, planning ahead for future turns or, you know, face up things about attacking and how to find lethal, those are skills to develop. And this is one of the best ways to do them, I think. So even if it's a little tedious, if you really are serious about improving, I think this is a great way to do it. Preach. All right. Great place to wrap us up. Thank you, as always, to Salty Pretzels for our intro and outro music. Make sure you give it a listen. Thank you so much to ChannelFireball.com for sponsoring this podcast. If you're heading over to CFB for any and all things purchase-wise, and of course, as Ben said, signing up for CFB Pro is super, super worth it. If you're doing that, please use the code LOL when you check out to let them know we sent you there. Uh, you can check us out streaming. I'm at twitch.tv slash Lord Tupperware. Ben is at twitch.tv slash Mr. Metronome. We're both under those same usernames on Twitter, and you can tweet at the podcast at Lords of Limited. If you've got any feedback about the show or any questions, shoot us an email at lordsoflimited at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll catch you next week for another episode of Lords of Limited. Thanks, everybody. See you later. deck <laughs> i forgot i forgot i'm, I'm impressed with myself <laughs> it's admiring it's like <laughs>
it's like looking in the mirror and being like, hey, hot stuff. How you doing? You do, yeah, I also do that. So I have to tell you. <laughs> 